Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're looking at more mythos deities from Clark Ashton Smith, including Sathogwa, Atlatnacha, and if we have time, Aboth as well. A terrible trio, one might say. But before we get into all that squamous stuff, what is going on? I believe you two went to Concrete Cow last weekend. I was there early on the Saturday morning and running a game of Call of Cthulhu uh, in the little room on, on one side. And then I came out for lunch and there sat at one of the tables was Mr. Sanderson. Yeah, this is the, uh, the first physical event I've been able to get to after coming out of hospital. So it was a nice change of pace. Wearing a very loud shirt in a built-up area. <laughs> And funnily enough, n- nothing bad happened to me. <laughs> no, and uh, <laughs> I thought it. And um, so, also, I had the pleasure of playing in your game in the afternoon. So I looked at all the games that were on offer on Saturday afternoon, and I thought, well, Basin with Matt sounds pretty good. And you had again. a packed, you had a packed table. Yeah, I think it was the the first game to to, uh, to sign up as well. It was. It was. Um, yeah, that was a, a fun game. I got to play a. a a religious, uh, well, religious nutter, or a pseudo, a, a pseudo religious nutter, um, and uh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I put together a pack of uh, pregens for all the ten archetypes in the core book, so there's always plenty of choice when um, when I hand them out for the different basin scenarios I've been putting together over the last year or so, and people have played that uh, religious nutter as you put him to varying degrees. <laughs> <laughs> The nuttiness goes from peanut scale up to maybe cashew nuts. It's uh... <laughs> so. Did you? I mean, I don't know what that scale meant. Did you create those pregens, Matt, or not? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. The way that you create them in the book for the uh, base and character is you have a series of options as to what's kind of inspired your encounter with Basin, and. So what I essentially did was just pick the various options and then build a backstory around it and then I built the sheet on top of it with a little uh, with a few extra advances. Because with your production qualities of the stuff you give out at games, I just thought that was one you had downloaded as a PDF and obviously you'd printed it out and laminated it to a high quality as well. But I figured that it was like a, you know, a published one. I didn't realise you had created that. But halfway through the scenario, I did look around the table at what everybody was sort of doing and it the penny dropped and i was like matt did you write this scenario and matt's like yes and i'm like okay everybody we need to do more research more research back to the library because there's more stuff to find out (laughs) yeah i remember that moment (laughs) yes (laughs) it definitely had the the feel and flavor of one of your well call of cthulhu scenarios or you know one of your general scenarios whatever that is the matt sanderson stamp was heavy upon it (laughs) Yes, eventually I'll get round to putting them up onto the uh, Free League workshop, but I need to get the rest of my desk clear at the minute, and that's going to take a while. <laughs> and hello to all the uh, listeners of the show that we met at Concrete Cow. Good to see you all. Yeah, there were quite a few. So, Scott, I understand you've uh, been interviewing film directors. Yes. 
One of the films I reviewed as part of my October horror movie challenge this year was Luz, The Flower of Evil, this fantastically weird, psychedelic horror film, folk horror film, I guess, from Colombia. And I had a chat with the director and writer of the film, Juan Diego Escobar Alzate, whose name I hope I haven't mangled too badly there. And we chatted on the Discord server in text there, and I've edited the discussion up into a post which I put in the blog section of blasphemoustomes.com. And this discussion goes into the inspirations for the film, which include Jodorowsky and some experiences with ayahuasca, apparently, that led to one rewriting the entire thing at the last minute. And he also told us a little bit about the Latin American horror scene and some of the directors that we should be looking out for. And yeah, it was a fantastic little discussion. I see a certain book has manifested itself on the Misconic Repository there, Paul. Yes, I've got out a new scenario entitled My Little Sister Wants You to Suffer. This is a Call of Cthulhu futuristic one-shot. And as you say, Matt, it's available on RPG. If you back us on Patreon, I've sent out a discount code, which is valid until the end of December 2022, which gets you 30% off the price. It's PDF at the minute, isn't it? The print edition will follow later. Yeah, that's right. So uh, it'll be in print early next year. Thinking of audio goodness now, I hear there's some uh, audio goodness going on over at the Good Friends server. Yes, once again, we're doing a Christmas ghost story reading on the Good Friends server. This, once again, is being organised by a good friend, Mike Percival Maxwell, who is directing this production of The V by Nikolai Gogol. It's a bit different, I guess, than our previous readings of uh, Christmas Carol and The Canterville Ghost, but it is still a ghost story, even if it's Ukrainian rather than British. But it is a... A weird, strange, and fun little story. As I said, Mike is overseeing the whole thing and is doing a lot of the narration and is joined by uh, Dom Allen, John Casey, Sarah Dovey, Sue Savage, Rena Henzi, and myself reading different parts. We will once again record this and put it out on the feed. But if you want to catch the live readings, we'll be splitting it over four nights on the 15th, 16th, 20th and 23rd of December. A bit scattered, but trying to schedule that many people around Christmas time is a bit of a feat. And finally, if you back us before the end of this month at the $5 level, that is December 2022, we'll send you a signed edition of issue 10 of our Cosium licensed fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome, featuring a brand new Call of Cthulhu scenario by our very own Matthew Sampson. Hey. Yes, well, we'll keep the PDF up on patreon.com for all our backers to download in perpetuity. This is your only chance to get a printed edition of it that we've all signed and, you know, that we've all touched. No hand sanitizer here. I'm not sure that's the selling point you seem to think it is, Matt. <laughs> we've licked every copy. Moving swiftly on. And now on to our main topic... 
Mythostaites, Sathogua, Atlatnacha. And I'm going to say maybe Aboth, because I'm not convinced we're going to get through three. Well, once again, we're returning to the deities of the Cthulhu Mythos. Specifically this time, we're going back to Clark Ashen Smith and looking at three of his creations, Aboth, Atlatchnatcha, and Sarthogua, and how they've been developed in fiction and gaming since Smith first introduced them. These three make a particularly apposite grouping, as they all first appeared, in person at least, in Smith's Hyperborean cycle story The Seven Gearses, which we discussed back in episode 90. The Seven Gearses was first published in the October 1934 edition of Weird Tales, and we'll examine the three gods in the order in which Lord Ralabar Vuz encounters them in the vast underworld beneath Mount Vomithedrath. Sathogua. So, what are this lazy, horned toad's origins in fiction? Because he is pretty lazy. He just sits around and kind of waits for people to come to him. Indeed. Well, unlike the other gods we might mention, Sathogwa predates the Seven Gearses. And whilst this story marks his first personal appearance, he was first mentioned in Smith's The Tale of Satampra Zeros, first published in Weird Tales in 1931. In this tale, two Hyperborean thieves decide to rob a temple of Sathogwa and come off a bit worse for wear. They don't encounter the god himself, but they do encounter an idol of him. He was very squat and pot-bellied. His head was more like that of a monstrous toad than a deity, and his whole body was covered with an imitation of short fur, given somehow a vague suggestion of both bat and the sloth. His sleepy lids were half lowered over his globular eyes, and the tip of a queer tongue issued from his fat mouth. In truth, he was not a comely or personable sort of god, and I did not wonder at the cessation of his worship. I love that word globular. Yeah, Smith had a real gift for finding just the right word. <laughs> the story also gives us the origin of the formless spawn, with one lurking in a large bronze basin in the temple. Smith describes it as a primordial slime that extrudes an uncouth amorphous head with dull and bulging eyes that arose gradually on an ever-lengthening neck and tentacle-like appendages in lieu of claws or hands. It gives off an odour of long imprisoned mustiness combined with a queer and unfamiliar fetidity. Fetidity. That's a word I've never said in my life. Smith is full of words that you've never said in your life, that no one has ever said in their lives. Yeah, he sure is. Returning to the Seven Gearses, out of all the gods beneath Mount Volmithedrith that Lord Ralabarvus encounters, Sarsokyur is probably the best known to the world of men, and Mount Volmithedrith is known as the place where... The sluggish and baleful god Sarthogur, who had come down from Saturn in years immediately following the Earth's creation, was fabled to reside. And during the rite of worship at his black altars, the devotees were always careful to orient themselves towards Vormithedrith. When Vuz encounters the sorcerer 
Esdegor. He is compelled to find Sathogwa and present himself as a sacrifice. And what a great quest. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to do that? You're going to do it anyway because you're under a gears. The first of seven, in fact. Indeed. You shall know Sathogwa by his great girth and his bat-like furriness and the look of a sleepy black toad which he has eternally. He will rise not from his place, even in the ravening of hunger, but will wait in divine slothfulness for the sacrifice. And going close to Lord Sathogwa, you must say to him, I am the blood offering sent by the sorcerer Esdegor. Then, if it be his pleasure, Sathogwa will avail himself of the offering. Yum. Again, if he can be bothered to eat you. Yeah. Yeah. Such, I mean, it's such it's, a it's proactive right. god. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, Vuz comes across a cave distinguished from the others by a most evil potpourri of smells. And boy, potpourri does spell awful. Yeah, it does. The skin-clad skeletons of men and various animals are scattered across the cavern floor. Then he discerned in a dark recess the formless bulking of a cushioned mass. And the mass stirred a little at his approach, and put forth with infinite slothfulness a huge and toad-shaped head. And the head opened its eyes very slightly, as if half awakened from slumber, so that they were visible as two slits of oozing phosphor in the black, browless face. And I do love that image of how Sarthogua's eyes glow with this phosphorescence in the darkness. That is a nicely weird touch. Hmm, those globular eyes. And moving closer, Vuz discerns the fine dark fur on the dormant body and sleepily parected head. Then Sathogwa awakes. There was a sluggish inclination of the toad-like head, and the eyes opened a little wider, and light flowed from them in viscous tricklings on the creased underlids. Then Relabar Vuz seemed to hear a deep rumbling sound, but he knew not whether it reverberated in the dusky air or in his own mind. And the sound shaped itself, albeit uncouthly, into syllables and words. Luckily for Vuz, Sarsoka tells him, Since I have fed lately on a well-blooded sacrifice, my hunger is appeased for the present, and I require not the offering. Less fortunately, Sarsokua commands Vuz to head on and offer himself to the spider god Atlachnatcher instead. This story is coming back to me now. It was, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a great story. It's, it's great fun. It's, it's ridiculous, sword and sorcery, weird fun. While the first mention of Sathogwa in print wasn't until 1931, Lovecraft started borrowing the name in 1929 after reading Smith's manuscript of The Tale of Satampra Zeros. The best known reference is probably in The Whisperer in Darkness. It's from the Kai that frightful Sathogwa came, you know, the amorphous toad-like god creature mentioned in the Narcotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon, and the Camorian myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Clarkash Ton. I wonder where that name came from. Hmm. Yeah, they do like their little jokes. Clarkash Ton being Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah, and HPL. Yeah. Hmm. 
Lovecraft also made passing references in At the Mountains of Madness and The Shadow Out of Time. His main use of Thogwa came in his collaborations and revisions, though. The big one is The Mound, Lovecraft's collaboration with Zelia Bishop, where the men of Kinyan discover the history of Sothogwa's worship by the serpent people. When the men of Kinyan discovered the red litten world and deciphered its strange manuscripts, they took over the Sothogwa cult and brought all the frightful toad images up to the land of blue light, housing them in shrines of yoth-quarried basalt. They even name the capital city of Kinyan Sath, T-S-A-T-H, for Sathogwa. And as they explore Nakai's black abyss, however, the men of Kinyan find living things that oozed along stone channels and worshipped onyx and basalt images of Sathogwa. But they were not toads like Sathogwa himself. Far worse... They were amorphous lumps of viscous black slime that took temporary shapes for various purposes. They are so appalled by what they discover that they destroy all their images of Sathogua and abolish his cult. And so this is, I think, where a lot of the representation of Sathogua that we see in Call of Cthulhu comes from, this story particularly, rather than, say, Clark, Ash and Smith, because we had the association of Sathogua with the serpent people. We've got the further development of the formless spawn. We've got perhaps the basis of the religious schism that we see in the serpent people with the Sathogua worshippers pitted against against those who followed Yig. Colin Wilson also borrowed the name for the Sothogwans, an alien race in his novel The Mind Parasites, although they appear unrelated to the mythos, just they have the same name. Just coincidence. Yeah, that's just Colin Wilson. He borrowed an awful lot of stuff from the mythos and reinvented it in strange and unusual and sometimes quite exciting ways. Well, now let's take a look at how Sothogwa is used in Call of Cthulhu. I think having gone over those previous points, I think you can pretty much see where all the foundations have laid for this, particularly looking at Formless Spawn to begin with, that they're seen as guardians and protectors of secrets, or more likely that you wander into a temple down deep underground and you happen to run across one of these things, Mm. guarding an idol of Sothogwa. It all seems very much using that template of here's the the normal encounters that you've seen in fiction. So here's how they also work in, in game in pretty much the same way. Yeah, and Formless Spawn are a pretty cool adversary, I think. I like the fact that they're intelligent as well, that they can cast spells, that they're not just a dumb monster. They can actually have a degree of intellect and they can be more than your average opponent. Hmm. So, I mean, Sathogwa himself is, uh, well, what's he like in Call of Cthulhu? He fits the description as we've had, um, a kind of a large toad-like creature covered in brown fur may have two arms and two legs with multiple joints and claws may be found in mount vormithadrath in uh, hyperborea where he uh, where he journeyed to or just underground or just somewhere underground yeah who knows where he might have wandered off to worshipped by the vormis i'm not sure we mentioned them or not but nope. uh, and also something that uh, spoilers you may encounter in a uh, certain campaign that we worked on for pulp cthulhu mm-hmm. and animosity with the yig cult 
there's a big split between uh, Sathogua and Yig. And whilst Sathogua may have some human cultists, there's more like serpent people, worshippers of both Yig and Sathogua, mm. and there's something of a division between the two of them. The only other scenario or use that I could even find, admittedly I've not played all, obviously all of the scenarios for Call of Cthulhu and I've not read through every single book. I know heresy. <laughs> there's only one that I could come across otherwise, and it very much runs on the idea of it's based around an idol rather than it's the god himself. And that's the house on McKinley Boulevard that's in Last Rites, the old collection from, the, I believe it's in the 90s it came out. And there's also a whole campaign named for him, Trail of South Ogua. Hmm. But does it actually feature him? Because I'm not sure if it... I thought it was just in the title. <laughs> oh, really? I can't remember. Yeah, neither can I. It's got to be decades since I last looked at that. I mean, it'd be kind of ironic if you're on the trail of Sathogur and he's not at the end of it, but, you know, who knows? Well, it's like Spawn of Azathoth. He's not in it. But Nalathotep is in Master of Nalathotep, right? Spoilers! Okay. <laughs> Each of the Mythos great old ones and deities have various blessings they can bestow upon their followers. One of his is divine physicality, in which he can bestow physical changes. The Mark of Sathogua, in which one is stamped with his brand, if you like. That forges a psychic link to Sathogua and a doorway to divinity that he can grant to a follower, giving them access to a gate to his location so they can come and commune with him, which uh, I'm not sure I'd want to do. It re-emphasises his laziness, that he can't be bothered to go to them, that they have to come to him. Yeah. It does also state that he can send psychic projections of himself around the world while he just sits there like some kind of statue doing absolutely nothing. And I think this is why, out of all the deities that Clark Ashen Smith created, Sarsokia may be the best known, probably for the way that Lovecraft name-checked him and developed him, but I think fundamentally he's the least interesting out of them. And I think he's also quite a difficult one to use well. Part of that is what you were saying before, Matt, that he is a pretty somnolent god. He just sits there and doesn't really do much. But it's not just that. There's also the problem of his physicality, that he just looks, from the description, comical. You've got this pudgy, furry, bat-like, toad-like thing with glowing eyes that talks to you perhaps about how hungry he's feeling. You're not really going to get a sense of cosmic awe from that, are you? Reddit. <laughs> well, I think, what would your reaction be? I think this leads us into a new segment I'm going to call Can I Punch It? I wouldn't punch it. I'd go and give him a little stroke under the chin and go, hey, little guy, how are you doing? Oh. Well, you could do that, Matt, <laughs> but he might well swallow you because that is one of his attacks. He can swallow a target within five metres and you don't immediately die. I hope I give him the shits. You may well do. So if you get swallowed by him, you take 1d6 damage per round. In theory, you know, you could survive quite a while if you roll low. You can cut your way out, potentially, by inflicting 1d10 damage, which isn't going to kill him, but I guess you just cut a hole. He regenerates like 30 hit points around, so I guess you cut your way out, and it's like a zipper. You cut your way out, jump out, and it reseals. 
What I like the idea of is that you get into his uh, intestines, whatever they may be like, but what else is in there that's going to like grab you? You know, there may be other things living inside there, like gut bacteria, but bigger and with tentacles that are going to like, you have to battle whilst you're in there that distract you from even cutting your way out of Sathogwa's stomach. The mother of all tapeworms. You say that I'm having flashbacks to Cold Fire Within when we got eaten by a dole and the other creatures we found in its intestinal tract. Oh, okay. So it's already been done. Everything's already been done. <laughs> I can't come up with anything new. We even learnt spells from that little guy in there. You learnt spells from something in a doll's stomach? Yeah, it was um, a creature from Yadith that ends up teaching you a spell of basically how to give a doll IBS that allows the doll to shit you out. Amazing. But I'm going to tell you something now that was weird that happened today to me. So I was sat about nine o'clock this morning at my kitchen table. Big wooden table. It's clean. I'm sat at it. I've got my notebook and a biro. And to my left, I've opened up the Malleus Monstrorum. I think I was looking at Aboth maybe and just making a few notes. Sun's coming in the window. It's all nice, kind of quiet. I look down and there's like this fucking maggot crawling across the table i'm like what the f and it's not like a regular maggot it's like this little thing like a few millimeters about a quarter of an inch long and it's crawling away from the book i don't know what it was uh, i've not really seen one before you've not been watching the green death have you no no it wasn't one of them no it's nowhere that near that big but it was like i've opened up a book of arcane knowledge reading about like these sources of uncleanliness and there's a maggot you mean a fun-sized doll yeah clearly related gotta mm. be you summoned it that's what you did yeah exactly i did kind of spend an unearthly amount of time looking around for more of them but i didn't find any more i'm glad to say not yet anyway but apart from making these creatures manifest from the pages of our books, how might we use Sarthogua or his formless spawn in our games? If I had to use him, I say had, because I don't think he'd be my first choice of being a, a central antagonist in a game, I'd do something very similar to what we uh, kind of half-jokingly planned in the, our run-throughs originally of Two-Headed Serpent, of kind of have him jumping around like Donkey Kong, and actually have him <laughs> a bit more active and be a proper physical presence on the battlefield if the if investigators went toe-to-toe -to -toe against him. Yeah, because he's a pretty, pretty speedy dude. He's got like a, a movement rate of 16, which, which is pretty speedy, so he can chase you. Probably even if you're in a car, he can like jump after you if so. he can be bothered <laughs> if he can be bothered this is the thing i did actually have sarthogua turn up when i ran the two-headed serpent for how we roll though it was more in a psychic vision but it felt very real to the character who was uh, exposed to him and ultimately eaten by him but it still felt very much like comic relief. Trying to find that horror aspect was really quite tricky. If I were to try to find some way of using Sathogua seriously, I'd probably focus far more on the formless spawn. They seem to have more possibilities. And 
I got to thinking about where they come from. The name does kind of imply that Sarthogyo maybe births them. Mm. But I was thinking, what does this process look like? Is it some kind of actual birthing? Is it more that he somehow exudes them like a bodily fluid? Or maybe they're the leftovers of his meals, these husks or kind of the sloppy remains of his feasts. And I think witnessing the creation of one of these could be really quite sanity blasting. One of the lines in the Revised Malice Monstorum says that those that are worshippers of Sothogra, if they're kind of individuals or part of the very small human cult presence that he has, they perform pilgrimages to deep underground caverns and there they may become formless spawn. So it kind of implies that they are, to some degree, at least some of them can be made from humans or other worshippers that go to be with their god. All oh, right, there's because there's also like reference to enlightened ones, aren't they? Granted power by Sathogwa, who becomes our witches or sorcerers and so on, that might set up cults themselves or might take on some of the powers granted to them by Sathogwa, I guess, for their own agendas, their own uh, their own missions. And moving on to Atlaknacha. So what are Atlaknacha's origins in the fiction? Well, the first sign we see of Atlaknacha in The Seven Gearses is when Vuz encounters his eternal webs spanning a bottomless gulf. And that's already an interesting thing because we have this reference to Atlachnatcher being male, which is in direct contradiction to the portrayal in Call of Cthulhu. Ralebar Vuz went close to the verge and saw that great webs were attached to it at intervals, seeming to span the gulf with their multiple crossing and reticulations of grey, rope-thick strands. Apart from these, the chasm was bridgeless. Far out on one of the webs, he discerned a darksome form, big as a crouching man, with long spider-like members. Gotta love a long member. This form scuttles across the webs with incredible swiftness. When it came near, he saw that there was a kind of face on the squat ebon body, low down amid the several jointed legs. The face peered up with a weird expression of doubt and inquiry, and the terror crawled through the veins of the bold huntsman as he met the small, crafty eyes that were circled about with hair. Thin, shrill, piercing as a sting, there spoke to him the voice of the spider god Atlachnacha. Well, naturally enough, Atlachnacha's first reaction is that he wants to devour Vuz, but then he decides that he can't be asked extracting Vuz from his armour, or, as he describes it, from these curious shards of metal. Instead, he decides to command Vuz to walk across these webs to see if they'll take the man's weight, or if Vuz instead will plummet to his death in the abyss. And so all this really is the origins of Atlash Natcher. This is everything we learn about him in his first appearance. And I think it's safe to say that this is completely different from how he's been used in Call of Cthulhu and how he's developed 
I was about to say in the fiction, but he's not really been used much in fiction, but certainly very different to how he's been developed and used in gaming. Especially as he's gone through a sex change. Mm. Well, that kind of fits with that, in at least in the fiction, at least in the in the game subsequently, Atlat Naturis seemed very much to give birth to these other smaller spiders that it has dominion over, which it can use to almost impregnate other people. It's particularly dreamers seem to be the main ones that this spider crawls into them and then it manipulates them when these dreamers get back to the waking world. So I can kind of see where they've gone with female giving birth. It's just a nice, well, not a nice, it's just a convenient way to have this thing spawning little spiders. Then again, Sarthokyo is described as male, and yet he gives birth to his formless spawn. Mm. So I think the idea of sex in the Cthulhu mythos, or the entities of the mythos, is a pretty mutable and notional thing. And we'll see this again in a few minutes when we come to Aboth. I just respect their privacy. <laughs> Looking at Atlat Nature as an entity, we see that... Uh, he or she is not much bigger than a, a squatting man. So that it's not particularly big. We're not talking about like Shelob here. We're talking about something that's a bit bigger than a, a human being. So in uh, Call of Cthulhu, it's given a size of 125 with a person going up to like 90, maybe up to 99 or 100. But yeah, 125, it's, it's a bit bigger than a, a person, but it's not, it's not the size of a truck. Not a big hulking mass like something like a Leng spider would be. Is a Leng spider a lot bigger? I can't remember. I thought they were bigger. Yeah. I think the spider idea is seen in a lot of different cultures and myths. And I think a lot of that sort of comes in here. Not only the idea of a spider, but the idea of a weaver as well. And uh, the idea of a, a weaver of, in folklore, weaving fate and so on. And these are stories that we see in, in lots of different places. So we see them in, and these are some of the mentioned in the Malleus Monstrorum. Anansi in African stories, Unktomi in uh, American stories, in Sumerian stories as Utu, and an uh, ancient Egyptian figure called Neith, who is a spinner uh, with a loom. And of course, there was Arachne from Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That kind of weaving, or particularly when it comes to the web, definitely comes up again in Malice about the web that it's spinning between the worlds and connecting dimensions. Do you want to tell us about Arachne, Scott? Oh gosh, it's been a while. But Arachne, she wasn't a god. She was a mortal who, I think she was a weaver, and she challenged Athena to a weaving contest and somehow won. And it's the classic old story with the Greek gods that things went wrong as a result of that, and she got punished and turned into a spider and has been weaving ever since. And it's also something that just, to my mind, suggests children's stories as well. So there's like Incy Wincy Spider... There's a story about Granny Spider sits and knits. She sits and knits with all her wits. It's, it's a poem. I'm not sure if it's Edward Lear or what it is. But um, yeah, just, just something about spiders. They instill fear in a lot of people, but equally they seem to instill a fascination with people too. So we've got this strange interdimensional being that, that is spinning web that can hold the dimensions together. 
the web can be used as bridges across the dimensions, we're told, which uh, I think is a, an interesting idea, which sort of takes us into different times, different dimensions, maybe into dreamlands or dream. I think there's a lot you can do with that. There was a nice throwaway reference in Malice as well about that it maybe opposes Atlak-Natcha against Yogg-Sothoth in that she, he is pulling together dimensions, whereas Yogg-Sothoth is keeping the spheres apart, being the uh, the force that moves between them. Well, again, it's all nice and down to interpretation, really. Mm. Well, I think that's the thing with Atlak-Natcha, that because there's so little there in the original story, that you're pretty much invited to go in and create all this additional stuff. There's no metaphysical elements or anything particularly weird in the story. There's just this large spider, not even that large, that is building a huge web in this underground cavern and scuttling around it. And so, yeah, you can, I suppose, build anything on top of that. And it's that idea of spinning webs between worlds. Not that that's there in the original story at all, but it's that bit that appeals to me most about Atlas Nature that sparks my imagination. And that got me thinking about what kinds of cool things you could do with the spider silk that Adlash naturally uses to make his or her webs. So you could perhaps use that to make nightclothes like pajamas or a nightdress or something like that. Mm. And if you slept in those, what kind of dreams would you have? What would that do to your power of dreaming? Or even silk sheets, if you came into possession of a set of those and used them to make up your bed one night, where would you awake within your dreams and what kind of powers would you have there? A G-string. Yeah, that might lead to a different kind of dream. <laughs> I wonder what Matt was going to say. <laughs> now we see a number of blessings that Atlanta can bestow upon her followers. In the Malleus Monstrum, we're told that, that she doesn't have much of an organised human cult. But she can bestow the blessings of spider-like movement and perhaps senses, which, you know, obviously Spider-Man, right? Yes, obviously. I mean, that is clearly how Spider-Man got uh, his powers. I was a radioactive spider, right? So that was clearly you know, one of the, the Atlantlatcher's babies, I think. Or possibly Atlantlatcher herself in Tiny. There's also the spider parasites of Atlatnatcha, which have a size of five. So these things are pretty small, probably the size of a mouse or something like that. So, I mean, if it was a spider, it's pretty freaking massive. But uh, for a mythos entity, it's pretty small. On physical contact with a human, they can try and gain control of them, kind of burrow into them and, and gain control of them. Mm. Thinking of kind of parallels between this and Sothogwa, again, Malice does mention about the ways you might encounter Atlaknatcha, and it says that may be discovered in deep caverns or tunnels, normally would that give you access to his, her web. That, yeah, it seems like you go down deep enough and you're going to find something nasty. It's what, why do people go spelunking in the world of the mythos? Why? There's nothing good down there. <laughs> And that mention of spiders burrowing into people has reminded me of The Believers from 1987 as well. Now there's a film I haven't thought about for a while. I remember that being very scary and then going for a curry late night in Wakefield with a group of people after seeing that. Yes, that was equally scary, but yeah. Wakefield is a scary place. It is. 
And I'm going to say as well that uh, was some influence in the, the latest scenario in the Blasphemous Tome, not issue 10. I mean, maybe issue 10, Matt, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> in issue nine. I've got other Dreamlands uh, ideas in store for that. Right. Yes, yes. He, she, it does turn up in other scenarios, one also by me, the Dreaming Ward that's available on the uh, Cult of Chaos. Oh, yes. Features the god and its web. Yeah. And the only other one that I could think of off the top of my head is one from a licensee product from uh, New Tales of the Misconic Valley, formerly from Misconic River Press and now from uh, Stygian Fox, which includes The Reeling Midnight, which has, again, not such a direct appearance, but it's more like children of, it's people being turned into these spider-like weird things up in the house. Hmm. And I'd forgotten this until now, but there's another appearance, not in the game, but in fiction, which is a one-act play I read ooh, some years back, which was, I think, a self-published thing by an author called Alan Riker, called When Cthulhu Met at Latch Nature. I've just Googled it, and the blurb is, he's an academic, she's an artist. He worships Cthulhu, the slumbering behemoth. She worships Atlatnatcha, the spider goddess of dreams. Their interfaith marriage is challenging enough before the gods themselves arise and do battle. Can this couple hold their relationship together during the end of times? I thought you were going to launch at the end with, and together they fight crime. <laughs> I sense something unclean and terrible coming round the corner. Yes, I think we've got time to talk about Aboth, the third of our Clark Ashton Smith deities. And we've left the most unclean to last. Yep. So what are Aboth the Unclean's origins in fiction? Well, once again, Aboth comes from the Seven Gearses. He is the last one of the three gods that Vuz meets. And this happens when Vuz is told by one of the archetypes that he encounters in the cavern of the archetypes to seek out the slimy gulf in which Aboth, father and mother of all cosmic uncleanliness, eternally carries on its repugnant fission. We consider that you are only fit for Aboth, which will perhaps mistake you for one of its own progeny and devour you in accordance with the custom which it follows. Sounds like the head of the 1922 committee. It's not that horrific. <laughs> As Vuz grows closer, he encounters ungodly and disgusting creatures, which he likens to monstrous one-legged toads and immense myriad-tailed worms and miscreated lizards. They came flopping or crawling through the gloom in a ceaseless procession, and there was no end to the loathsome morphologic variations which they displayed. Unlike the archetypes, they were formed of all too solid matter. Well, happily for Vuz, the creatures he encounters as he grows closer to Aboth himself grow smaller and smaller, 
Less happily for him, the air is filled with hot, evil steam that leaves an oozy deposit upon his person and has an odour noisome beyond imagining. So, yeah, he's walking through this environment that is hot, wet, sticky, leaving secretions all over him, filled with buzzing things that Aboth is exuding and absorbing again. And in the pool, a greyish, horrid mass that nearly chokes it from rim to rim. Here he meets the ultimate source of all miscreation and abomination. For the grey mass quobbed and quivered and swelled perpetually, and from it, in manifold fission, were spawned the anatomies that crept away on every side through the grotto. There were things like bodiless legs or arms that flailed in the slime, or heads that rolled, or floundering bellies with fish's fins, and all manner of things malformed and monstrous that grew in size as they departed from the neighbourhood of Aboth. And those who swam not swiftly ashore when they fell into the pool from Aboth were devoured by mouths that gaped in the parent bulk. Mm. Yummy. Aboth briefly exudes a flat, webby hand, soft and slimy, to examine Vu's. The limb then drops off and crawls away, as he does. Then Aboth speaks to Vu's. I, who am Aboth, the coeval of the oldest gods, after careful inspection, I fail to recognise you as one of my relatives or progeny, though I must admit that I was nearly deceived at first by certain biologic similarities. You are quite alien to my experience, and I do not care to endanger my digestion with untried articles of diet. I only eat my own offspring, thank you very much. Only all the own crap that I spout out, you look a bit weird, is what he's saying there. It's strange. Yeah, I do like that he's looking at us and finding us as unclean and unappetizing as we find him. That really seems perfectly reasonable to me. He's right. Aboth describes his own existence as a profound and placid fertility. He then commands Vuz to depart. As Vuz leaves Aboth's presence, he encounters offspring large as young tigers or bears. One ponderous and sloth-like entity has a posterior studded with unamiable eyes. I mean, why did he say as large as young tigers? He was getting paid by the word. He needed to put as many in as he fucking could. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, just name a different animal that is that size. But I guess tigers are scary. He could have said three-toed sloth. That's three words. <clears throat> I'm just having trouble getting past the creature whose posterior is studded with unamiable eyes. Mm. That is really quite the image. I guess if, you know, as an eye, your existence involves just getting stuck on something's ass, it probably leaves you fairly unamiable. It sure is. I hate the idea of having eyes in my ass. Sit down <laughs> too, too heavy and pop. Ah, oh, there it goes. Yeah. Just think of them as hemorrhoids you can see through. No. <laughs> or not. So how do we use Aboth in Call of Cthulhu? Well, he's listed as another great old one, as all three of these entities that we've discussed today are. Huh. Not what I would have thought. Yep. 
Constantly spawning young and consuming them. Those young, those uh, spawn, occasionally escape. Mm. Uh, so they get to uh, wander up and worry humanity, which I thought was a great way of describing it. Worry humanity. Like we don't have enough to worry about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, these creatures are described as unfinished. They're all unique. Mostly they just act on impulse. And many are simply just reabsorbed by the god that just decides, oh, look, here's a booger of mine. Nom, 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 nom. It's quite a disgusting little image. But I think what probably what's more disgusting is those that uh, that get in contact with this, this creature. What happens mm. to them? Again, it's not got much of an organised human cult, but he can give out blessings, right? Mm -hmm. Artistic obsessions. So, uh, you know, that explains a lot. But also manipulation of life, which I thought was an intriguing one that you could make some good use of. Giving the additional gift, not only that you have this artistic obsession, perhaps with making things out of clay and wood and so forth, sculptures, but you can bring them to life as a homunculus or, or you know, like a golem or something like that. To life, to life, he'll bring them. Exactly. Well, I don't know. And we're not really talking about bringing like Frankenstein-like creatures to life, are we? We're talking about mm -hmm. things made of other materials like sculptures. Yeah, more Pygmalion than Frankenstein. Kind of like what happened in a different scenario I can think of, of uh, that didn't involve Aboth. What, one of yours? Yes, indeed. Yes. That you'll find in Nameless Horrors. Yeah, we're well, thinking of when Aboth appears in Call of Cthulhu material. There's again only one place I could really think of where he even appears, and it's not a scenario, it's a source book. The old Return to Dunwich, or H.P. Lovecraft's Dunwich, as it was later uh, reissued, in which uh, the poor thing is sitting half in, half out of a gate and in one of the chambers underneath one of the uh, Hyperborean hills outside the village. There's also the idea that Aboth can see through the eyes of its spawn. And now its spawn can crawl away, and you may have one in the lurking in the in the room with you right now somewhere, and it can see you. It can see you, and, and through its eyes, Aboth can see you. And maybe Aboth takes a fancy, not to you, but something on your table or something shiny you've got on the mantelpiece, and he'll send someone to come looking for it, or he'll send his, his, uh, his spawn to come and get it. So he has, he has hunger for all sorts of strange things. He's not that keen on human beings, but he might like other things. Although, ironically, those that maybe learn of Aboth and have that maybe psychic connection with him become obsessed with him and may occasionally want to go and join with their god. They'll take a wander down on their, on their spelunking tour and then they'll go for a paddle in that great big pool and never come out. Like Sasokyo, I think I find myself more drawn to the entities that Aboth creates than to the god himself. You've got these strange, misbegotten creatures that he just oozes out of him, that crawl away, and that get bigger the further from him they get. If that continues, you can only imagine what some of these things end up like if they get far enough away from him. Uh, do they end up like motherfucking kaiju or something? I also found myself wondering if these things ever become sapient. Whether you could perhaps end up with a scenario where you have a group of people who grew up together in an orphanage after being discovered as infants in some kind of natural catastrophe. 
And because of their human forms, they are completely unaware that they're actually spawn of Aboth. Until perhaps in adolescence or adulthood, their bodies start changing in strange and alarming ways. One day you wake up and there's this thing that looks like a malformed rodent or something that's just crawling out of your navel and looking around. And that's your first indication that you're not just an odd-looking person. <laughs> I was thinking it's the idea of that, how it's described in at least a few of them are that they're limbs that are just uh, sentient on their own that are kind of crawling away from this pit. Reminds me of the old Amicus portmanteau film Asylum with the body that's been cut up and then put in a fridge or freezer, but the bits of it still managed to uh, crawl around. Because I think that was written by uh, Robert Block, who obviously has his connection to the, to the mythos. So maybe that may have been bubbling around in the back of his head, thinking, how can I write an Aboth short horror film and uh, get away with it being kind of undercover mythos? Now, you know, I may be wrong, listener, but I know what you're thinking. Can I punch it? Well, <laughs> this is the important thing. Never mind all that stuff. The important thing, can I punch it? Now, it's got a size of 400. So this thing is size of an elephant. Maybe bigger. Surely you must get a bonus die for it being that big. And it's got a movement speed of zero, so you can just walk up and punch it. Yeah, and he's nice and soft and squidgy, so it's not like you get to bruise your knuckles. <laughs> 90 hit points, but it regenerates at 20 per round, so you're going to need to do more than punch it. But if you could stand back out of its 5-meter attack range, you can blast the shit out of it. So, um, <laughs> you know, the answer is tool up and don't get too close and yes you can metaphorically punch it but it will come back well you mentioned this attack range but what kind of attacks does it have pseudopods lots of them it creates them at will and then just throws them out a bit like a shoggoth that's actually a bit disappointing i'd much rather it vomited this swarm of creatures over you that just mobbed you mm -hmm. Yes, it's got a pseudopod whip, which I guess you could have as, as a kind of, a, it vomits it, it forth <laughs> and is able to seize people and absorb them. But it does kill you instantly if it does that. So that's <clears> not so good. <laughs> so going for that swim is the last swim you'll ever take. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank explicitly by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Dreaming Baku. And also thank you much to the singular, and hopefully I'm getting this name right, Reiki. And thank you very much to Genevieve. And thanks to Five-Toed Sloth. Not the three-toed variant that you mentioned earlier. And indeed, no, the five, the full five. And uh, hopefully, again, I'm getting this one right. Uh, thank you very much to the singular Cyridoric. And thank you finally to Neil Clench. And if we have mangled any of your names, please do get in contact and let us know, and we'll have another try and do better. And by we, you mean me. <laughs> All of us, Matt. And if you've enjoyed this episode... 
please do write us a review on wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and so on are always much appreciated. We also have show notes at blasphemoustomes.com where you can find links to all our other shows, merchandise and more. Or if you could just let people know on social media if you're enjoying the show, particularly people with like-minded interests, or alternatively, perhaps exude some little strange creature from your body and send it scuttling off to tell people on your behalf. We're happy either way. Which is significantly more interesting and inventive than just sitting back like a hairy old toad, sending a, a psychic projection or telepathic message beamed into a, a random stranger's head. I feel personally attacked by that, Matt. <laughs> You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com mm.